The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Spring Seminar, Medical Issues and Biblical Counseling. Do you all know what this is? I turned mine off before I started lecturing. So uh, could you all check your cell phones and make sure that they either silenced or turned off? So, right now, I think that if you go to Chick-fil-A, they have a box, and if you're willing to put, turn your cell phones off and, as a family and put them into the box and leave them there until after you're done eating, they'll give you a free ice cream cone. <laughs> That's right. I don't have an ice cream cone to give you. I've always, whenever a cell phone goes off and I'm speaking, I always take the opportunity to tweak somebody about it a little bit. But uh, what I always say, what I generally say is that um, Shakespeare said that all the world is a stage, uh, but my, my corollary is all the world's a phone booth now. Yeah, and you have to answer it in three rings or something. At least that's what we were taught. Uh, books. Let's talk about books. Uh, Michael Emlett, physician at CCEF, has written a nice pamphlet about OCD. I would commend that to your attention. They're available out there. Uh, Jay Adams on worry. I've always liked this little pamphlet. They're not very expensive. They're good to hand out uh, if you're counseling someone who has anxiety and have them uh, read and underline 10 sentences. I said 9, not 11, but 10. That'll fit into the day's lecture before it's over with with OCD. Um, Robert Kellerman, you guys aren't quite up to snuff here yet, are you? I, I mean, the jokes aren't very good. I, I know they're, they're going over your head and just not even slowing down. Anyway, Robert Kellerman for anxiety, uh, good, a good pamphlet. Um, I, I know in counseling, a lot of times I'm tempted to give people books. You know, read this book, we'll talk about it for 12 weeks. Um, but, you know, the truth of the matter is, in, in a, lot of, a lot of times in counseling, you're a little bit better off with something this size that you can talk about for a couple weeks because, you know, maybe, maybe yeah, they, they have trouble with anger, but I'd really hate to spend 14 weeks talking about it, um, um, you know, and when I'd really rather move on to some other thing. So you might want to think about those, this kind of things. Uh, with regard to uh, OCD and uh, Idols of the Heart, again, um, uh, Elise Fitzpatrick's book on Idols of the Heart, Brad Bigney on uh, uh, Gospel Treason, uh, both play into what we're going to talk about with OCD. Now, this is supposed to be the most difficult, difficult hour for uh, speakers, and that's because you all ate the turkey or something. I, I read someplace that actually turkey, it doesn't make you sleep more. That's, that's uh, urban legend or something. Um, but I, honestly, if you fall asleep, I will not be offended. If, as I often say, that if I were an anesthesiologist, it actually would be a compliment. <laughs> right, right. Now, if you do get tired, <laughs> if you do get tired and you're going down, uh, some of you just got it. That was good. <laughs> if you do get tired and you're and you're thinking about you're going down and you're back behind the cameras, you could stand up. I guess that doesn't work so well if they're videotaping. So if you at least if you fall asleep, don't snore. Let's let's we'll go to that instead. All right, OCD. Let's talk about that for a while. In, um, all right, let me see, okay. In um, Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34, it's a great passage of scripture. Um, in it, Jesus talks about worry. Matthew 
And it starts in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or for, what, or for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Is the body more than clothing? And then you skip down to 28. Are you, and why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They do not spin. And he goes on. And then in verse 31 he says, do not worry. And you know what's really interesting about that in the grammar? What, what do you call that in English grammar? When it says, do not worry. It's an imperative. Yeah, what's well, that in Greek, actually? You know, so this isn't Jesus making a, a, a good suggestions about how you might have a better life. This isn't seven happy suggestions for dancing Mormons or anything like that. This is, this is God speaking directly to us and telling us, do not worry. Then... You go down to 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Actually, I like the King James there, because it's very Shakespearean. It says, sufficient is the day for the evil thereof. It's just great, great phraseology. You know, when you play 34, 33 off against 34, what is, what is Jesus telling us? Seek first his kingdom. And what is the defect that occurs when we worry? We aren't seeking first his kingdom anymore, are we? No, we aren't. Then Philippians 4, what, is, what does Paul tell us in Philippians 4 about worry? Something about don't worry? or I, I think it's pretty direct. <laughs> Philippians 4, 4? No, yeah, rejoice in the Lord always again. Say, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Do not worry. Guess what that is in Greek and in English? It's imperative. Yeah, it's not a suggestion. It's not a good idea. It is, it is the inspired word of God telling us, do not worry. And then, finally, in Luke 12. Back to Luke 12. And this is the end of the Bible race. It's great to hear the pages, though. Luke 12, same passage, um, well, the same story, actually, um, and um, Jesus says in verse 32, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, fear and worry, all tied right together, same person, same place. Very particularly well-chosen words by the Holy Spirit. You know, the, the, the different words there on purpose, isn't it? Yes. Fear and worry are, are tied together. Two years ago, I received a phone call from a young husband, father of a six-month-old infant with a young wife, and who at the time he called was a resident at our residential facility on our church campus called Vision of Hope. Vision of Hope is a... Um, Residential facility for young women, not so much young anymore. Actually, you know, we're starting to kick the upper end, you know, out of the bracket. And um, we, we have older and older residents. Um, initially, it was just for young women. But it's for, young, for women who have problems with uh, eating disorders and drug abuse and um, who, who uh, struggle with cutting and any number of other kinds of 
of problems for whom uh, counseling as, uh, as an outpatient uh, does not seem to have been sufficient and where they need to be totally immersed in a, um, a day in and day out from the time they open their eyes until they close them at night program of discipleship. You know, that, that's, that's what they have there. That's, that, I'm, I'm the medical director for the facility. So the young husband calls me and he starts to tell me about his story, his wife's story and her struggles and, and how um, she had uh, an irrational fear that every time she touched the new baby, her six-month-old baby, that she was harming her, um, causing the child physical damage. Um, and it, 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 by the time I uh, was called, uh, about the most she could do is sit in a corner in the room and rock back and forth and cry. That was, that was why, how her whole life was being con conducted. Um, the father told me the story, and when he got to the end of it, I, 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 I thought for a moment, and I, and I said, well, that's interesting, but I've heard the story before. And, you know, no, I hadn't. It wasn't her. It was, it was six years earlier when I was talking to another family who had a daughter who was telling me the exact same symptoms. And, and with that, I, 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 that was hope. I could tell that young man that uh, there was another young lady who had the same problem, uh, and who worked her way out of it, who found her way out of it. And the problem for the woman at Vision of Hope was OCD, and the problem for the young lady six years earlier was obsessive-compulsive disorder. Now, what is obsessive-compulsive disorder? Well, the definition of OCD is it's an anxiety disorder in which individuals are identified with the problem, um, are bothered with thoughts they cannot dispel, and with obs uh, obsessions. What is an obsession? Well, these people are, uh, uh, can be uh, fear, have, have fear of contamination and in dirt. Um, infectious disease is a big deal. Uh, a need for order and symmetry. I was in a meeting, uh, oh, probably two years ago in, uh, up at our corporate headquarters in Sussex, Wisconsin for Quad Graphics. And um, the, they, they put us in what they call a Kaizen room, and that's where they take all the combatants in a problem, put them in a room, give them big post-it notes, and tell them not to come out until they've fixed it. It's a little more complicated than that, but that's sort of how it works. And we would write things on the big post-it notes, and then we would go take and stick them up on the whiteboard in front. And, of course, we would all stick them just about any way that we, you know, thought, you know, like this and this. The lady who ran the meeting... A, a, a dearly nice lady. We would come back after breaks and everything would be straight. <laughs> you know, we would look at her and go, oh, we understand you entirely, yes. <laughs> she had very high need for order and symmetry. Then there are people who uh, have a need for hoarding and saving, people who can't, you know, every once in a while you hear about somebody who is crushed when the uh, piles of stuff that are in their house that are, you know, they have a pathway that walk through the middle of the house this wide and the stuff goes all the way to the ceiling and it collapses in on them and they die because they, you know, the weight, they can't breathe. Um, so hoarding and saving. Then there is unex uh, uh, unacceptable sexual content to their, to their thinking. They, they will think thoughts that they will do not want to tell anybody. And they don't want to think and don't want to happen, but, you know, it, it, it will be bizarre and um, difficult things. And then there are folks who doubt that they did an important task. That was, you know, mother, put the, have you turned the coffee pot off? Um, did, you know, did you leave the curling iron on, sweetie, before we left this morning? And uh, um, 
she's not paying any attention to me. Or, no. She shook her head no. Actually, I saw her unplug it, so we're doubly safe now, right? The, uh, the new Heiser's house will not be burned down when we return. She doesn't worry with things like that. I do. Um, then there are people who fear blasphemous or sacrilegious thoughts. The folks who come to you and say that, you know, can you tell me if I've committed the unpardonable sin? You know, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit and therefore I'm going to, I'm forever doomed, damned, and I'm going to hell? You know, that, that, that's, that's what they want to know. Now, uh, after that come the compulsions. What are compulsions? The fearful thinking results in behaviors, which they believe that they have to do, and therefore they're called compulsions, and they believe that the behavior must be done in order to avert disaster. I have to to not step on the crack in the sidewalk, because if I do, my mother's back will break. That really, you know, that may very well be a very elementary um, uh, observation that somebody made uh, about someone who uh, was obsessive-compulsive. You know, the person who has to wash their hands uh, 45 times or 50 times a day. And, you know, if they're not obsessive-compulsive, then you would say they're a doctor. Well, yeah, you know, you see 30 patients a day, you're going to wash your hands 60 times a day. That's just just the way it is. Um, So then there's compulsions. And so there's a washing and cleansing. Uh, as, I, as I had one OCD lady that I uh, counseled with who uh, would sweep her apartment four hours a day, she had burned through multiple electric sweepers. You know, they, they hadn't made an electric sweeper that could, could, could work with this woman. <laughs> she, she would sweep. Uh, uh, I, you know, I don't even know that there was much of a rug left after a while. Uh, putting things in the right order. That was my friend up in, in Sussex. Um, checking to see if things are right. You know, it was me this morning opening my briefcase back up and pulling my notes out to make sure that I had all the right notes before I left the house because it's a little drive over here. Just a little bit. Yes, just a little. The obsessions are not logical. The compulsions consume life. That's a good way to describe it. The important thing to remember is that these individuals do not want to do the things they fear. You know, that, that, that becomes very important because some of the sexual content ideas that they might have and, and other things can land them in jail if they describe them to the wrong person. And if that wrong person doesn't understand that this person has obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and um, uh, so it's important to remember that a person who actually has obsessive compulsive disorder does not want to do whatever it is that they're worried about happening. What they're really trying to do is avoid it. You know, and the rituals are, are arranged so that they won't do it, all right? It's, a, it's an important dividing line. Um, all right. So who's affected by OCD? It, uh, you know, it generally appears in people from ages 10 to 21. Um, the, um, it may occur earlier than that because people don't tend to talk about it. You know, if you're, if you're a checker and your checking is somewhat trivial, uh, but, you know, would seem a little ludicrous to your friends, you're probably not going to tell them until it gets to the point that it has uh, starting to affect your life in a way that it consumes it. So probably, you know, the onset is earlier um, um, than, than we would know from talking to the counselee themselves. Um, uh, people uh, can go on for years without talking about it because they'll be embarrassed by the, um, um, the details. 
OCD, like everything else in counseling, is now has a spectrum. And, and what that is all about was uh, the DSM-5 guys felt very constrained to stay under 300. You know, and so what they did was they took a bunch of things and, and they stuck them into one category, made a category, and then, then swore that they didn't have more than 300 diagnoses, which was, you know, not truth in advertising. Um, up to 10% of what an average primary care physician sees in an office may be connected to obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, <clears throat> the national incidence is by no means anywhere near 10%. It's just that they have a lot of trouble. And so their, and their problems take them to see doctors. <clears throat> Popular examples. Uh, my favorite one that you'll remember is Monk. Yes, remember seeing him chasing the garbage tr truck down the road because he knew the evidence that would solve the murders in the back of the garbage truck and, and being terribly conflicted because he didn't know if he could dive into the back of the truck in order to rescue the, <laughs> rescue the trash bag that had the evidence. And finally he jumps. And, and then there was that one... One scene where he's watching the guy do chins at the gym, and the guy stops at 39. And he's, he's sort of hanging there at 39, and, 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 and Monk is saying, no, one more, just one more, please, just one more. And the guy gets mad at him and rips off four. <laughs> yeah, and then it was 43, so it didn't, didn't, it didn't help him at all. Um, Howard Hughes was uh, certainly an obsessive compulsive, probably, uh, you know, with... And, and with elements of agoraphobia. Uh, very few people realize that because he died uh, having been hidden, having hidden himself in a hotel in Las Vegas for decades. Uh, did not go outside, did not cut his hair, did not cut his fingernails. Um, you know, the only reason why he could survive like that was because he was enormously rich. And so he could live any crazy way that he chose, which was the problem. He was afraid of being uh, contaminated with infectious disease. Uh, I, I read an account where he uh, had a date with a lady who I think was named Greer Garson. Is, is that right? Um, famous Hollywood woman? Um, well, maybe I got the last name wrong, but her first name was Greer. It was? I'm right. Okay, yes. He had a date with her, first and last date with her, in fact. And they went to a restaurant, and they sat down, and uh, he decided he had to go to the restroom for a moment, and he did, and he came back about an hour and a half later. And the, and the reason why he came back from about an hour and a half later is because um, the um, towels in the restrooms at that time were the pull-down kind. Yeah, and that meant that you couldn't get the towel all the way over to the door to open the door handle. And so he stood in the restroom for a, a good hour waiting on someone else to come and open the door because he couldn't touch the door handle because he was afraid he would be contaminated. Now, to tell you the truth, it, he, he wasn't crazy. Um, the, there was a, uh, an infectious disease meeting that I, I read about uh, or heard about in a meeting I was in not long ago. And... Uh, they, uh, it was a meeting of doctors who were infectious disease experts, all right? And what they did was they parked people in the bathrooms, uh, uh, gender-appropriate observers in the restrooms, to watch the uh, attendants of the meeting come in and go out. And what they did was they counted the ones who washed their hands after they went to the bathroom. And what they found was at least 70% of them did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, now, these are people who study infectious disease, yes. And you would think, no, about infectious disease. And 30% of them didn't, which is why I always take a paper towel and open the door as I leave the restroom, as you might want to as well. Um, anyway, 
that, that was Howard Hughes. His, I could get out of, I, I'm somewhat obsessive about that, but I can get out of the bathroom one way or the other. <laughs> oh, oops, oops. Too many clicks. All right. Way too many clicks. There we go. So now let's talk about obsessive compulsive disorder in me. Yeah, I'm somewhat obsessive. I, um, the thing that I, I, is noticeable is the garage door. I, um, I, um, I, when I leave the house in the morning, I drive, I, I back out of the garage and I hit the garage door, closer, opener, whichever, and then I hang, you know, turn around and hit, start to go down the driveway and I go wide to the left so that I, I get down to the bottom of the drive all the way to the left and then I turn right. And as I do, I can look over my shoulder and see that that garage door is all the way down. And if I don't and I forget it, then I, I have to drive around the block. I'll drive around the block. I only have to drive once, but I drive once. Um, now, it is not without some reason, in fact, because once uh, Helen and I went out of state, went to Ohio from Indiana, and when we got back, the garage door was up. It had been up all weekend. And so that kind of drilled me, you know, that, you know, maybe a leaf or something blew through the uh, electric eye before it got all the way down, and boom, it went, went back up. Now, my wife has taken measures to, to cure me of this. Um, she, she bought a new uh, uh, security system for our home, and it has a feature which means that I can close the garage door from any place in the world, and I can check to see if it's closed from any place in the world. So I really don't have to go around the block anymore if I, I don't want to. Yes. So practicing medicine, too, does require a little obsessive compulsiveness, doesn't it? I, and I think they picked us for that trait somewhat. Um, when they were looking for us as, as we applied to medical school. Hey, actually, all of you do want me to be a little obsessive about your lab work, don't you? Yes, you, you don't mind if I miss somebody else's abnormal result, but you don't want to think that I'd miss yours, do you? No, no. So it sort of is drilled, it's drilled into us. And then I can remember when I was about 18, I started having to deal with what I thought to be really intrusive thinking, things that I won't bore you with the details, but which were very disturbing to me. And even to this day, I can tell you that I can get up in the morning and I can remember every stupid thing I've ever done. It just starts, starts to drill out for me. And what I, how I respond to it at that point is I start reciting Romans 8.1. Uh, you know, there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'll keep reciting it until the adversary hits the trail and I can move on. So I understand the struggle. I, I don't think that I would be I can't be diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. I, I do wash my hands a lot, but I, I don't wash them a lot because I fear dying or somebody else dying if I don't. But nonetheless, I understand what it's like for that young mother and that young woman before her. And for them, I can tell you that there's great hope in Matthew chapter 6, isn't there? Yes, if God tells us to do something... He intends to enable us to be do, able to do so, doesn't he? Yes, entirely. You know, this is all by grace. This is important for believers. It doesn't work quite as well for non-Christians, but, um, but it's important for believers. So how did we help, how did we help the young woman? Well, you know, first off, it really helps to know something about the medicine of OCD. And if you really want to know about obsessive compulsive disorder, I've sold more of this man's books than I've sold of mine. You know, because every time I go talk about OCD, I tell everybody, if you really want to know about obsessive compulsive disorder from a medical viewpoint, go buy Brain Lock. <clears throat> Jeffrey Schwartz is the author. 
May the Schwartz be with you. And I know all of you who watch the movie, don't I? Yes, that's right. And you'll never forget the author. Yes, Mel, Mel, no, it's not Mel. Mel Brooks, yes. No, he didn't write the book. It was Jeffrey Schwartz. <laughs> that's the problem with memory things, isn't it? Sometimes you get them mixed up. Um, in it, he describes uh, his work for uh, helping people who struggle with um, with obsessive-compulsive disorder. He is a physician, a psychiatrist up in a clinic at UCLA up in Los Angeles, um, which is dedicated mostly to caring for people who have obsessive-compulsive disorder. He is not anti-religious. He is not a Christian, I don't believe. Um, I, I, probably with a name like Schwartz, I would say he might be Jewish. Um, the way he writes, you'd think he was a Buddhist. I don't think he is, but he's certainly in the mindfulness uh, movement. Um, that is very, very prevalent in the United States today. A fan of the Dalai Lama. Schwartz believes that people who have OCD can learn their way out of it. And this is a non-Christian, a, uh, a psychiatrist, um, and he believes that, that, that they can change the way they think. Period. That's what he thinks. Um, he um, has done considerable research in the area, and that research, if you read his book, is, is the, he has MRI scans on the front and back cover of his book. And they are MRI scans of patients who came to his clinic completely uh, bound up by OCD and whose um, MRIs light up like a nuclear power plant. And uh, then uh, the, the second scans are people who've gone through counseling and whose... Uh, MRIs have uh, reverted mostly to normal. And, and what he has said about that phenomena that he sees is that he believes that uh, people who have OCD have a underlying brain difference, uh, which in, in a part of our brain that enables us to quit thinking about something. Now, you and I can terminate thoughts. We don't keep on thinking about things that we don't want to think about generally unless I tell you not to think about pink elephants. If I tell you that, you're going to be stuck with pink elephants the rest of the afternoon. But, but, but we can terminate thoughts normally. Individuals with OCD probably have a difference, and I think most likely do have a difference in their brain, that makes it difficult for them to terminate thoughts. It does not make it impossible. It makes it difficult. So that when something pops into their head that's really revolting, they are stuck with it. You know, and, 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 it, and it reinforces itself. You know, the more you think about it, the more, the more revolting it gets. And um, the uh, Schwartz, who is a strong advocate for what we call neuroplasticity, um, you, you know, there, there were two uh, schools of thought with regard to how our brains operate. Uh, one uh, by, a name, by a guy who I think his last name was Cajal, who said that, you know, uh, if you have a stroke and it knocks out part of your brain, you're done. You know, there's no way it's going to compensate. There's no way it's going to reorganize. And his thinking uh, probably uh, was the guiding light in neurology for uh, maybe 75 years. Now, now, what we really think happens is, no, our brains uh, adapt. You know, uh, th that if you look at the brain of a person who plays a um, cello or... Uh, yeah, cello, their left hand, the area in their brain for their left hand will be considerably larger than that same area uh, on the right side of their brain. And it's because of all the fingering that they do. And um, 
you know, what, they, what the neuroplastic people are saying is that the, the, the things we think about and the, the things that we do shape our brains, literally, not figuratively, in, in a very literal sense. So it comes in that verse in the Old Testament that could have told us that, you know, uh, 2,000 years ago or 25 or 100 years ago that, you know, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You know, what you think about is what your brain becomes. Um, the, um, his treatment for it is cognitive behavioral therapy that is aimed at people who have OCD, and I'll talk about it in a minute. Um, he says that medicine is helpful, um, doesn't say it shouldn't be used. He says, he says it's like water wings. Um, he, de- he, he says that the medicine will help, it does not fix the problem. That if you took 20 milligrams of Lexapro for the rest of your life, it won't change how you think. You know, that indeed you have to put your hands down on the, on the, on the handlebars of the bicycle and turn the ship in another direction. Uh, so, medicine helps, but it's not curative. The, um, and in my uh, observations as a physician, I've seen lots of people who've been treated medically for long periods of time for it and been on three and four drugs and do miserably as compared to people who get uh, um, good counseling care and who do better. His pattern for dealing with it is what he calls the four R's. He said that they would relabel it. You know, they would look at the thinking and call it rational or irrational, and you're supposed to develop a a rational observer. Um, Then you reattribute your abnormal thinking to your OCD. It's, it's, It's kind of acute. He says, it's not me, it's my OCD. I cannot completely agree with that because it ignores the fact that we have sinful hearts and that our sinful hearts make choices as to what we think about. Um, but, I, you know, I can sort of halfway agree with him. Um, then, uh, refocusing. You change your thinking to someplace else and you, be, you get involved in some active physical activity that, um, that requires your full attention and, uh, and, and bodily activity to do. Uh, don't worry about it. I'm going to reiterate all this in a second in, in, I think, a more biblical way. And then the last thing is that you revalue the experience. And for Schwartz, it's mostly looking back across all the time you spent washing your hands that you didn't need to. You know, how, how, how much of your life did you burn up in those rituals that actually proved or did nothing for you? All right, now, so then let's look at, look at it through the lens of Scripture. OCD through the lens of Scripture. Um, what role does a disordered brain have in the process? Well, you know... As I considered what Schwartz wrote and what I knew from the Bible, I had to take somewhat care because I don't believe that you can take psychology per se and integrate it into Scripture and get anything but confusion. That's, that's what I think comes out when you do that. Instead, I set out to find how the medical facts, the empirical evidence that Schwartz had, fit into what I know about human behavior described in Scripture. That's what I was, that's what I was aiming at. How did those scans fit into the Bible? Much like the Pope and Galileo, you know, you, you don't want to be saying that the world is flat just because you misinterpret what Scripture says. So, where I looked to was Paul in Romans 5. Uh, you know, we talked about it earlier, Romans 5.12, the, the description of a fallen man, you know, therefore, by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, so death has passed upon all men for all have sinned. It's Romans 5.12. It's the reason why when I get up in the morning, I see wrinkles in my face. You know, those wrinkles weren't there when I was 20, and I could, I could run a lot faster when I, was, when I was 20. And thanks to Adam and Eve, I have wrinkles, and I don't run as fast. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think any of you and me 
any of, any of us would have made the same awful choice that they made. But they made it. And as a result, all of us are born, and immediately we begin to do what? We, yeah, we immediately start figuring out how to die. That's, that's what the whole process is. You know, 75 to 85, or maybe at the outside 90 years later, that's where we all, that's where we all end up. As a result, our brains do not function in the way that they could have. I don't think we are anywhere near as smart as we would have been uh, if we were in the uh, prior uh, to the fall state. In theology, we call it the noetic effect of sin. How did sin affect our minds? How did it affect our bodies? And, um, and so our brains do not function as they should have. And for this, for this young woman... And for those who struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder, I think it's safe to say that first and foremost, they're dealing with a Romans 5.12 affected brain. And that's what I tell them to tell themselves. You know, The reason why I can't stop thinking about this is because my brain is disordered in a way that keeps me thinking about the same thing. Um, then, you know, how do we counsel individuals that, um, when, when this may not go away? And I'm not going to tell you that it may not go away. I'm going to tell you it's not going to go away. You know, the individual who has OCD is going to get to deal with it in some way, shape, or form for the rest of their life. The question is, is will they be disabled by it? Very much like the guy that I was talking about earlier who has sad moods, uh, uh, you know, many days out of the month, but who has learned how to deal with it in a way that glorifies and honors God instead of spending half his month being unhappy. Um, these, this, this young lady was, is going to get to deal with uh, recurrent uh, distressing thinking probably for the rest, prop, not probably, for the rest of her life. I still have intrusive thinking. I, you know, still kind of look, I still look at that garage door. I do. And I am, I am very obsessive about uh, patients' laboratory work. You know, why? Because, well, I don't want them to die and I don't want to get sued. You know, it's, it's real strong drivers uh, in, in personality. Now, you know, uh, you know, it starts in, in dealing. How do we counsel these individuals? It starts back in 2 Corinthians 5.9. That's, that's where all my counseling starts. I'll, you know, my counseling starts in 2 Corinthians 5.9. Actually, it starts with me listening to somebody for at least 30 minutes. You know, maybe longer, depending on if they can get their whole story out in 30 minutes. But I always give everybody the first 30 minutes um, uninterrupted. And some people, you have to ask questions or they'll never talk that long. But, but at least I give them that much time. And uh, then, you know, some people, you, eventually you do have to intervene because there are some people who come and talk to you an hour a, a week for the rest of your life. And uh, they would never grow change or do anything different. But they would think it was great fun, and uh, you might not, but they would. And so at some point you do have to intervene. And the place of intervention is 2 Corinthians 5.9. Why? Because their motive has to change. My motive for life has gotten me to this point, and this point isn't very good. How am I going to get out of it? I have to change my motive. I have to change my goal. My goal has to become, I want to glorify God with my life more than I want to breathe. And then, then it flows into Matthew 22. I have to love God more than being safe. Being safe and being right. Those are the two operative terms for OCD, in, particularly in this lady that I dealt with. Safety and being correct. And everybody recognizing my correctness. That was a big deal. And, and then obeying the imperatives of Scripture. She was going to have to go to church and sit down and, and be there, be around people that made her feel uncomfortable so that she could do her drill while she was uncomfortable. You know, escaping from the scene does not help you. Staying in the bathroom doesn't help you. 
reaching out and taking the handle on the doorknob in spite of whatever might be on it helps you. Yeah, it does. I, I, I had an OCD guy that I used to take care of in the office, and I would make him open the door to our office without washing his hands. You know, that, and, you, know and you could just see it was like, uh, you know, it was huge effort on his part. But, you know, the more he did it, the better he got. So, um, changing motive. Uh, knowing pathology. Does knowing pathology help the struggler? struggler? Yes, entirely. Does it help someone who's having crazy thinking, you know, intrusive thoughts going through their head all the time? Does it help them to know that there's probably something wrong with their brain that enables that to happen? Well, entirely, particularly if those thoughts are bizarre enough to make you think that you are, uh, you know, insane or immoral or evil or demon-possessed or any number of other things that I've heard people tell me that they thought because of the thoughts that were going through their head. So when you tell them, no, 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 that's, that's not it at all. This is just a random piece of thought that you picked up, and your brain does not have the ability at this point yet to stop it. But we're going to teach you how. We're going to teach you how to stop it. And it helps. It helps the depressed guy who, with, the, with the bad mood. It helps the OCD person for them just to understand it. It's also immensely helpful for them to meet, read about, and understand that other people who are in the same situation have done better. You know, that they, they, that they have survived it, that they've moved on through it. As, as I told the lady that I was um, uh, counseling, that sometimes sitting in church makes me very uneasy. I know that may seem strange to you, but it does. And part of the thing that I do to, uh, to not attend to it is I take my iPad, and it has a keyboard, and I, I can type the whole sermon in while the guy's talking. I can, I can type like the wind. And that takes my mind to, to where it needs to be, not to where it might wander. It keeps it focused into the sermon. Um, so, yes, it's, an, it's, very, it's very helpful. Um, then... How can we help that thinking biblically? Well, the first thing we do is we got her to identify whether her thinking was rational or irrational. And she would believe that she was harming this child even though there would be people in the room who were watching at the time and who would tell her that she wasn't. And it took a good while, but eventually we were able to show her that, you know, one, one aspect of it was, was that she was very proud and very smart and that she viewed us as less smart because we didn't agree with her. And so we, we took her to passages like Romans 13 and places like that, and, for, and Peter, and, and taught her that humility is a great virtue in Christianity, and that right at that point in time, she was living opposite to that, and that she needed to be in submission to her husband, to her counselors, to the people who stood around her, willing to help her and hold her accountable and to, and to pray for her and love her. And eventually we were able to get, get through to that. Eventually she was able to come to the point where, even though she didn't know exactly if she agreed with us, she recognized that, the, uh, that the, her statements were outrageous. You know, they were just completely out, irrational. Then we, also, then we would work, the next place that we work to, is it true or untrue? You know, Philippians 4, 8, you know, what, what are we supposed to be thinking about, folks? Whatsoever things are true entirely. That's what we're supposed to be focusing our thinking on. And, 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 and again, it took a good while, but eventually the young woman could, could identify the things that she knew we were going to tell her were untrue. You know, it, it, it is kind, it's kind of a stepwise sort of thing. At first, she recognizes that we're not, that we're not lying to her and that what we say is true, even though she might not agree with it. But then eventually she comes to be the person who says, 
yes, I recognize that this thought is not true. Then the second thing was for her was to identify the physical cause for her, for her thinking. And that was Romans 5.12. I, I would have her say that this thought, the reason why I can't stop this thought is because of my, my, my broken Romans 5.12 brain. That was what I would have her repeat. The reason why I can't stop this thought is because of my broken Romans 5.12 brain. Which then, you know, takes her to a, a much better place than you know, I have this awful thought running through my mind and I must be a horrible, wicked person or, or I'm certainly uh, completely unhinged. Um, then, so um, then the next thing that, um, that she had to do is accurately describe the thinking and behavior biblically. And it's, it's very important at this point for um, individuals to describe how they are choosing to respond to the thought. All right, this is, this, is a, this, is, this is where a lot of good work is done. Because by and large, a lot of the choices they make, well, some of them will be benign and some of them uh, will be um, very unbiblical. Um, you know, if, if she chooses to dwell on the temptation, worry, and fear, then she is choosing to respond sinfully. You know, particularly in a, in a setting where she understands what the Bible says about worry and fear. Uh, if she is so consumed by her obsessions that she can't take care of her child, that she can't, um, uh, doesn't have time to uh, attend to the needs of the house or to her husband, then, then she is neglecting things that the Bible says she ought to be doing as a wife, isn't she? Which then is a sinful response to her situation. If she chooses, I call it non-religious legalism, it's really nice. That's what sweeping your floor four hours a day is. That is non-religious legalism. That is, that is doing a, a, a deed, doing something that is supposed to make me feel like I'm a good person. Yeah, that's legalism, whether, it, whether it's Baptists or Presbyterians doing it or if it's just unsaved, irreligious people doing it. It is all in one of the same, some, same thing. I can make myself better by my deeds. So, and in, in, in this part, the young woman had a will. And she could either choose to, to respond biblically or she could choose to respond sinfully, one or the other. And, and so we would work with her on how she chose. Then she would pursue better choices. You know, this woman was a believer. We took her to Romans 6.16. You know, that, uh, you know which, who are you going to choose? Who are you going to work for? Know you not to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. That's a choice I get to make. It doesn't make any difference if I'm obsessive, compulsive, or, or, or what. It, I, I, get to make that, I get to make that choice. It's, it's the sum of what occurs in Galatians 5, 16 through 26, where Paul gives us the list of the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, and, and, and high up in that list in the fruits of the flesh is idolatry, isn't it? Yeah. And the idolatry for this woman was safety and being right. So she, she, gets, she got to choose. We get to choose as Christians because we are. We get to choose by God's grace. This, this, is, this is a strictly empowered thing by grace. Now I'll tell you this, Schwartz thinks he, unsaved people can do it. Schwartz thinks anybody can do it. And if Schwartz thinks anybody can do it, why should we think that people who have the indwelling Holy Spirit can't? No, I, I, I would think we would sit there and go, wow, I, I, I think this was something that was probably better designed for people of faith. 
And Schwartz says that. He says, if you have a good religion, write it. That's what he says. He's, you know, if your religion works in the system, please use it. That's, that's, that's his response to it. And the, um, um, the young woman struggled with the idea that she could choose not to be enslaved, but eventually she came to grips with it. And in the course of her care, of course, she developed more obsessions. You know, we'd get her off one and boom, man, she'd come back next week and she would have another. And, and I, it, it, it's not over. I, mean, I still meet with her every once in a while and we talk about a new obsession. One that she developed while we were there was, uh, there, we have Canadian geese in Indiana. Do you have Canadian geese in California? You're so fortunate. They are protected by law and they are nothing but protected varmints. They should be shot and, and frozen and then given away to poor people for food. That's what I think of Canadian geese. And, um, and now you know what I think. Any, uh, but anyway, everywhere they go, they leave uh, their droppings, goose poop. And so, and there are a lot of them up at, at Lafayette, and they poop all over the sidewalks. And so this lady noticed that and then decided that the people who walked into the Vision of Hope home would have to walk across the sidewalk where all the geese had been and where the goose poop was. And they would drag that in and put it on the carpet where she would, when the baby would come to visit, she was living in, the baby would come to visit, the baby would be down on the... Uh, carpet and would be contaminated and therefore die. Uh, that, was, that, was how she, that was how the obsession worked. And my response to that was, that's just more goose poop. And from that point forward, whenever she came up with a new obsession, the way that I could very quickly get to the end without having to spend a whole lot of time explaining to her how ridiculous what she was saying was, this is just more goose poop, isn't it? <laughs> yes, that's what we did. Ah. Um, so... I think it's in it's Galatians 5, Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. You know what the word sorcery is in Greek? Pharmakeia. Yes. Ah, guess what they're talking about there? Yeah, they were talking about drug-driven magic. Oh, it reminds you of something that's going on in this country, doesn't it? Yes. Um, well, anyway, idolatry, sorcery, enmities idolatry. That's what this is all about. And the, and the thing that the young woman was worshiping was safety. Safety in being right. All right. But as opposed to that, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, meekness, faith, temperance. Against such there is no law. Self-control. That's what temperance is all about. If we live by the Spirit, verse 25, let us also walk by the Spirit. The believer, she had, could, make that choice. So, she had to choose whether she was going to choose idolatry and, and worship safety or choose love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, and self-control. And it was important for her at that point to know that she was not alone in the choosing. That's Philippians 2. You know, working out your own salvation, verse 12, with fear and trembling, but knowing that it's God who works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. God doesn't want you to worry. God will make you able, not to worry. It was a big effort for her. It still is a big effort for her, but she's doing it. Today, she's doing it. Christians who struggle with OCD have an amazing advantage over, over non-believers. We of all people on the face of the earth believe, as Paul would say, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things pass away. New things are coming. Now, the refocus part of it that, that, uh, and that we're talking about right now, that Schwartz talked about, has to be physical. 
Uh, it cannot just be thinking over some other verse that you'll obsess about. And so some of the things that we designed for her to do were like knitting. Uh, she had to, whenever she would start thinking a, a, a difficult thought, then she had to knit. And the knitting had to be complicated. It couldn't be simple. And she had to say the pattern out loud while she said it, while she did it. So she's knitting, she's watching the knitting, she's saying the pattern out loud, listening to the pattern, and then all her muscle inputs are going into her brain at the same time. So what am I doing? What are we doing with that? We're overwhelming her ability, capacity to multitask. Now, I know that half the audience here thinks that you multitask. I know you do, but you don't. It doesn't happen. Nobody multitasks. That's a farce. Uh, what happens is the same thing that happens with a computer. Computers move so blindingly fast that they move from task to task, and you think they're doing two things at once. They're not. They're doing one thing for a while and another thing for a while, which is exactly the same thing that humans do. So if I make her do four or five things all at the same time, directed at one thought, I can keep her for a prolonged period of time about thinking for of her uh, of the uh, abhorrent thought. So that was just one thing that we'd have her to do. I, uh, I, other things that we'd have her do is take her kid for a walk and um, uh, sing praise songs to the child while she was going. You know, it's like you're out, you're walking, you're moving, you, um, and, and then you're engaging your brain, you're engaging your ears. Um, huh, and, and other times we would have her read to the child. You know, read out loud. Reading out loud. It's really hard. It, you know, if you're struggling to keep your mind in your Bible, you know what I mean? You're, you're reading your three chapters a day and four on Sunday, and you've read through that third chapter, but all of a sudden you're at the end of the chapter and you realize you can't remember anything you read. Well, you know, the way to disrupt that is to read it out loud. You know, because if you read it out loud, then you, you lock out parts of your brain that could wander. And, um, so just, you know, and that's what we did with her. Those are things that we did. It had to be physical. And what you're doing when you're doing that is you're burning in new default pathways. Her old default pathway is to continue thinking about the wicked thought and go wash my hands a hundred times. The new default pathway is I get up and I go do something different and I think about something else at the time that I'm doing it. And the more she does that, that part of her brain gets bigger. The less she does the other, that part of her brain actually gets smaller. All right? That's the, the science and the scripture behind it. Burn a new defat, defat, default pathway. Now, what's the value of perseverance? Making better choices. The value of perseverance. Um, it's Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Oh, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he reaps. And he usually reaps more than he sows, later than he sows. That's Charles Stanley once. I heard him say that. More than you sow, later than you sow. Um... Let me get there. Galatians 6. Yes, for, for the one who sows to his own flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. That's her choice. You know, am I, am I going to persevere in, in my abnormal thinking? Or, but the one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit reaps eternal life. Or am I going to, am I going to burn a new pathway in this brain of mine? Verse 9, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. And that's the value of doing it. Everyone sows in life, and we sow what we reap. And the choices for this young woman were to continue in the fruits of the flesh or to bear, or to bear the fruits of the Spirit. Um, and she chose 
the fruits of the Spirit. Good for her. Um, and what was the value of, of keeping at it? Well, she's back home raising her daughter. Uh, she can take care of her. She does not live in the constant fear that if she touches her, she will harm her. She's back home taking care of the home that her husband kind of comes home to. And that's great benefit to him. Um, and then she gets to be an example to other strugglers. This lady gets to talk to other people who have uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, and she can tell them that there is hope. There's hope to survive. All right, now, important questions for Christians in this situation. An important question, uh, you know, when I, when I wrote my, my book, Good Mood, Bad Mood, my aim was that the 90% of people who have normal sadness, you know, what I'm really more interested in these days is the 10% who have disordered sadness, you know, and, and, and what is the hope for those people who have genuine differences in their brains that, um, that affect their, the way they think and their emotions and their behavior. And I, and I can tell you my experience with the folks in OCD makes me think that they're very much alike. That, you know, that, 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 that the way that they respond to these, these struggles is very, is very similar. And so the first question that I ask folks who come in is, how did you train your heart? You know, how did you, how did you learn to live with this problem? That's what I want to know from you. And it's not Second Peter 3, I think it's Second Peter 2, 14. I can, I can tell you how most of them trained their hearts. Um, as unsaved people, by and large, that's how they learned how to deal with their trouble. They learned how to deal with it when they, before they knew the Lord. And it's 2 Peter 2, 14. And it says, speaking of unsaved people, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. That, that, is, a, that is an apt description. You know, this lady was greedy for safety, and she was greedy to be right. She wanted us to tell her that what she was doing was what she was doing when we knew she wasn't. That was how she had trained her heart for almost 20 of her 30 years. So the question is, is how have you trained your heart to get to this point? Then the, the next question that I ask them is, how do you want to train your heart from this point forward? And that's Second um, Peter 1, 1 through 8. And, and, you know, start in verse 3 where it says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by those he granted to us his precious and mag magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason, apply all diligence in your faith. Just, you know, keep at the drill as, as someone who struggles with OCD. Uh, apply all diligence. Hold on here a second. Yes. Apply all diligence in your face. Apply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, which is an apt description of progressive sanctification, isn't it? They will render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There, you know, there is an apt description of the solution to retraining the, the brain and the, and the life of someone who trained themselves with a greedy heart as an unsaved person and who now must retrain it as a saved person. Then, 
The next question I ask is, is how willing are you to depend on God's grace acting in your life to power the change? Are you really willing, in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, to be God's workmanship? You know, do you really think that you have to do this by yourself? Are you willing, really willing to let him and others work in your life for change? And then the last thing is that I, I tell them that there's good news. You know, the, Paul says in Romans 1 that God wants to use the same power that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead with to change us. That's the power that he intends to use, the same power that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I come before you now and, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have to help people who struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder and any other kind of thinking. God, I pray that uh, you give us wisdom as we seek to use it. And God, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2016, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at ibcd.org.